0: Intensely Inquisitive, the podcast that searches for answers to life's big and not so big questions from the people qualified to give them, with your host, Orion Kelly. Hey, and thanks for taking the time to listen to Intensely Inquisitive. I'm Orion Kelly. At the core of this podcast is a desire to understand things on a deeper level, to know more and ask why. My purpose is to empower you with knowledge, education, and growth opportunities through open, honest and inquisitive conversations. In this episode, we explore the topic of humour and ask the question, is there an epidemic of over-seriousness in the world? My guests, Zara and Troy, are the directors of Great Talk. Great Talk provide a variety of communication and engagement programs with clients like Coke, Microsoft, Mars, Qantas, Telstra and many others. Zara believes good humour is good business and that there is a power in humour for improving health happiness and the bottom line. Zara believes many businesses are suffering from an epidemic of over-seriousness and that there is now a common misconception that capability and seriousness are the same attribute when they are in no way related. Zara and Troy, thank you so much for joining me.
1: G'day, Big O. (laughs) It's our pleasure, O. It's nice to hear your voice.
0: It's great to... talk to both of you guys again for obviously you know people are listening and going these guys sound like they know each other or something usually when I interview people apart from you know uh, my my wife uh, trying to die I um, mean people don't really know me but uh, just so we know there's the history between us we've all worked together uh, in radio, we worked together at a radio station in you know, a radio station in Perth. It changes its name every two to three weeks, and I think it's still as successful as it as it's ever been. Um, <laughs>
1: How dare right. you, sir? How dare you say they're okay without
0: us? Uh, yeah, well, well, they're not. Um, <laughs> Obviously, there can only be one Zara and Troy. That's kind of a contradiction in terms because there's two of you. But you get you get the point I'm making. Mm. Ah. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. We we worked together on breakfast radio or on radio together. You had your own show. We had our own breakfast show on the same network many many years ago. It's hard to believe that it's it's so many years ago. But you know what's amazing o, is that we still get all of these years later, like more than 15 years later, um, letters and presents from listeners mm. and it just touches our hearts. Like I, I can't believe how important radio is to people in the community. So doing a good job of it is is pretty important.
2: Yeah and podcasts, we're gonna say ditto too, because your mm. podcast's awesome. We love it. I still get zero contact from
1: anyone to do
2: with anything to do with my time
0: <laughs> at Perth. If that makes you feel any better.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to send you something. Yeah. For
0: those who don't know uh, our history, would you be able to share with us your, your career journey from obviously when we were, you know, not Perth before Perth to, to how you came to, to work together? Cause this is a great story and I think people w- would love to hear it. So just, Tell us a bit about your journey.
2: All right. Well, I'm, I'm going to kick off with my side of things. Um, Zara and I both had an interest in theatre from when we were very young, um, at school especially, and um, we actually both studied at the same acting college in Queensland, although at different times. Her brother also went there. My mother worked there. My auntie worked there. So we actually had a lot of cross paths at different times. <laughs>
1: Brisbane's a very small town, yeah, obviously. Obviously,
2: <laughs> obviously. That, QUT. It's a great acting college, though. It does really well. And, um, you know, eventually uh, my mum actually said to me, oh, one of our students has graduated and he's opened a comedy restaurant and at this time I'm you know trying to get into college myself I'm uh, working as a waiter and she said you should go there because the waiters get to act they get to be characters and I thought it sounds like it's right up my alley. I rang up this bloke turns out to be Zara's brother he forgot to show up for the interview however the head waiter was there and she hired me and um, I started working there and some years later Zara came back to be in the show and that's kind of how we met.
1: Yeah so it was a a wonderful sort of uh, training ground for young actors and performers in Queensland because we got all of the young actors to work as waiters and it was one of those dress-up restaurants as well. So it was a, um, a black-lit comedy club but very advanced for its years actually. Mm-hmm. It was it had very sort of high-tech show and it was an environment that everyone loved to work in because it stretched us As It stretched us as performers Mm. But it really had this beautiful family vibe And for most nights of the week You know, we would run the show And then sit around a couple of tables At the end of the show till 3 or 4am Drinking the profits Yeah, (laughs) drinking all the profits is right (laughs) But it was a beautiful environment And people would often come in on their days off And say, look, I was in the area Um, Is there anything I can do? Do you want me to help you set up the restaurant? Because they just wanted to be part of that team It was tough at times also but mm. it's funny, you look back retrospectively and think, wow, that was a really beautiful time in our lives. Mm. And ironically, we went from going to bed at three or four in the morning to waking up at three or four in the morning when the phone rang and they said, do you want to come and work on radio? And at the time, I think it was B105, a radio station in Queensland, mm. was running a comedy debate and they'd rung me to say, hey, do you want to come and be on one side of this debate? And we've got a bunch of comedians on the other side. And I said, sure. Um, And I put a whole lot of work into writing that debate. You
2: actually did. That debate stood out because you were the only one who'd prepared and prepared really well for it. So you you actually blew them away that
1: day. Yeah, I'm a bit of a control freak, Oh, So Mm. I I do like to – it takes a lot of work to appear this sloppy.
2: But, in fact, (laughs) um,
1: I did a really good job on that debate. And the next day, Osterio called and said, you know, we've got a job for you. Would you be interested in coming and working for us? And I said, sure, can I bring my husband? They said, no worries, do we – have to pay him? And I said, no. <laughs>
2: Thanks for that.
1: Yeah, we we really shouldn't do our own negotiations no, in the no, future. No. Um, but the rest is kind of history. So we got to... Work together, and it works beautifully for us because we've been together as a couple for 27 years, and we spend 24 hours a day together. Not many people that can do that. My favorite joke. Shall I do it, Troy? Yeah, please. please. I do love do. it. I do cause back it up. It's, Clear it's,
2: some space. Here comes the gag. Well, really?
1: it's based in truth because <laughs> we moved in together. The first night we got together. That is true. 27 years ago, and I often say some girls play hard to get. I play hard to get rid of. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, Yes, oh, it's funny oh, stuff. Mm, it's funny. Mm. Mm. <laughs> so that's kind of the backstory. story. We went from a comedy club uh, yeah. to to radio and uh, then we got better from radio <laughs> and uh, now we're helping people to become better storytellers and keep their sense of humour in the workplace and we're we're very blessed.
0: And in the current state, Great Talk Australia is where you find yourselves and it really is an amazing journey when I, when I look back and can I just say with regards to... You know when you were invited into a radio environment, and that that happens, that continues to today. You know if they if they think who's the new up and coming talent, let's get people in, give them a go, see what happens. I think it's a great example. There are many funny people out there, and as a as a you know as a rule, potentially comedians um like to work more improv. They don't like to prepare as much. But from my point of view, I truly believe obsession. I don't want to sound strange, is the key to success. if you If you obsess about what you if you obsessively work hard on what you actually want to do and achieve, you're going to achieve it rather than, well, I'll keep doing seven other things at once and hopefully you know that one thing will pop up. And I think that's exactly what you did, Zara. You, you obsessed about putting energy into what you wanted to do. Uh, you know not rocket science, you stood out, aside from obvious talent, you you actually put the work in, and the key is here work it's obsessively working about what you believe in and it will it will be achieved and god thank you for doing that you've shown me too you've you've given me another lesson that this again it's it's backed up by everyone on the planet that is the key zara you've shown us another lesson that is the key don't be one of those people that just oh it'll happen i'll just kramer style improv it even if you're
1: funny obsessively yeah. work hard and you'll bloody get there. Yeah, yeah, look I I totally agree, but I think also oh that I've got a little bit of um a little bit of wisdom, perhaps, that permeated oh. my, my mind oh. and my life. Are you going to lay some whiz on us? I'm going to lay some whiz on you <laughs> right. right now because <laughs> I'm not as young as I used to be, but I, I think you're absolutely right. Not not our
2: Kelly style, by the no, way. No, <laughs> She means wisdom.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Thank yeah. you, Joy. It is, um, it is obsession and passion and focus and dedication and commitment and all of those things, but it's finding the sweet spot between being here and there mm. so you know I used to with radio as well um, you know we worked 12 hours a day every single day when we were on radio we had one day off in our four years with Osterio and that was the day my dad died and we you bludger yeah <laughs> I know, <laughs> we um, we focused on it but at the same time it tipped over into frustration it tipped Mm. over into a feeling that we weren't enjoying our work we weren't enjoying the environment we weren't where we needed to be we felt unsupported nothing was ever kind of good enough and so Mm. now I know that there is a sweet spot between getting where you want to go and being where you are currently and the more joy you can bring to it which actually is the greatest challenge when you're you know trying to build something from scratch Mm. um, the more joy energy positivity and and good vibrations that you bring to it the more likely you're going to be able to sustain it and create some pretty wonderful results obsession on its own can be problematic
2: i agree it'll get you there Mm. but Mm. you
1: want to find the balance of making sure that your mental health is is um, also being looked after.
2: Yeah, yeah. And I think maybe it's a passion, you know, more so than obsession. It's obsession with a positive focus mm. and that doesn't leave you drained or feeling worse. Hopefully it's developing you and may- maybe it's passion.
0: Yeah, look, I just like the letter O. Uh, but I <laughs> <sort> of, <laughs> and, look, and from my point of view, I mean, don't get me wrong, when I, when I say obsession, I, I mean, you know, I just don't like the uh, – it's absolutely about passion and purpose and this is what I love. There's no use spending your life doing something you don't know, love. But I guess what I think is sometimes people, they 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 d- identify something they love and what they want to do, but they still try to put energy into many other things. I guess that's what I was kind of getting at, but you're
1: you absent. I 100% agree with you. And, you know, in our coaching session, so we, we train professional speakers to be able to get onto the the professional speaking circuit and deliver a great story. And one of the lessons that we give to them is it's not, will it work, it's how do I make it work? So a lot of speakers come to us and go, oh, I've got this idea and I'm not sure if this is going to work. And it's always about, it's not, you know, will it work? It's how do we craft it, shape it, deliver it, rewrite it, rewrite it, rewrite it, rewrite it. How do we get it on your feet? How do we rehearse it? How do we make it seem spontaneous? How do we add some humour into it so it's really engaging for an audience? Um, and then it's, it will work but it's not, oh, do I just sit here and hope that it'll work? Mm. <laughs> no, mm. you do the work.
2: And we've done a bit of work in um, telly and you know, done some workshops with some amazing American writers and one of the things they talk about for TV writing especially is um, you've got to get it on, on, on its feet. You can't just talk about an idea mm. with the character and go, would the character do this? Because mm. you're going to argue about it in a writer's room forever. But if you start writing that scene, all of a sudden you'll have a better idea even if that scene's terrible and you're not going to use it, you go, okay, the character wouldn't do that but let's have a go at this and you're actually in action rather than mm. just talking about it mm. one
0: one action gets you to other actions. Without action, there are no other actions. It's a great point. Now, when did you guys, guys realise you were funny? Because this is a great question. I love this question when I, when, I, when I talk to people that are funny. When did oh, you realise oh, you
2: were oh, funny? And what did it teach you about humour? All right. So after, the, you know, 27, 28 years together, uh, I'll tell Zara's story. What? Zara realised she was funny because there's a Gold Coast community theatre called Spotlight. Oh, my God. And at the age of five, I think, or four or five, she was Humpty Dumpty in a show and discovered that she could steal focus from the other actors. (laughs) Uh, and then she so went, true. oh, this is a bit good. I'm a bit funny. Look yeah. at me go.
1: I was actually five and I was fat and they didn't know who else would look Well, you good fit the egg. As an egg. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. So they made me Humpty Dumpty. And I do remember, it was actually that show and another one, I was um, in Aladdin. Oh. Um, and I played Aladdin's mother as like a seven-year-old. <laughs> and same, dearly, I, I learned what upstaging was. Yes. And I learned that while well, the lead actors were down the front doing their intense monologue, I could be up the back. Uh, pulling focus and pulling faces.
2: Which directors love, by the way. They love that.
1: <laughs> and the audience um, <laughs> would love it. But for, for me, actually, I worked for my brother at a comedy club, so I was studying to be a, a serious actor. Mm. And he opened the comedy club and he said, look, on Friday of next week, there's a spot for you to do a stand-up. I've written it for you. Do you want to do it? Mm. Um, And so I went, yeah, all right. And I just learnt somebody else's stand-up and I delivered it on stage and it was such a rush to be able to do it, but I didn't like any of the writing, so I rewrote it. The next week and then I just kept enhancing it until it was something that I loved to deliver but really for me I got thrown into the deep end it was like you've got a week to do a stand-up in front of 200 people your time starts now go and can I just say if you ever want a really good cleanse you know if you really want to get everything that's in your body out uh, of your body yeah. um, tell somebody they've got a week before they have to deliver a stand-up comedy routine
2: and you did very well and I think that you know what we spoke about oh, the preparation side of things and you know being obsessive with Getting it right, getting it ready, being comfortable with the content that really came through for her in that instance as well. And then she went on to write her own stand up and did that for many years and we both, you know, were headlining at that club and supporting people outside of the club like Rove and Hamish and Andy and all those sorts of guys, Jim Owen and Rich Hall from The Simpsons and you know, it was a great time. The late nineties for stand up was awesome. And it's having a bit of a resurgence right now because mm. Melbourne Comedy Festival's on right now.
1: And Netflix and oh. HBO and Well
2: stand up specials are easy yeah. to make, they're cheaper than TV. Yeah. So yeah. And what has what it taught you about the power of Humor. Being
0: realizing you're being funny, it's like it's like you wake up and you realize you can fly. You know, there's the power of being. It's, it's a superpower. You've got a power. What's what has it taught you that of that actual that power you have?
1: Well, it is a super a superpower. We believe that it's the one thing you can hold on to until your dying breath. But if you don't use it, you lose it. And it was only when we started to lose our sense of humor that we truly understood how important it was. So we'd come from running the comedy clubs to doing breakfast radio and you worked with us in that environment. So you know that it wasn't the most nurturing <laughs> and fluffy of environments and there were challenges with you know the team that we were in and, and just a, a bunch of stuff and we didn't have the skills. Mm. We didn't have the coping skills to be able to navigate those challenges um, with a light heart and so we started to get really sad. In fact, there were days that we'd sit in our car outside that station, which sounds ridiculous. We were earning a a, a lot of money um, doing a job we loved and we were good at and yet we were so miserable and we'd sit in our car. And many days I was in tears before I had to walk into that environment and that was when we kind of went, shit, your sense of humour is everything. Mm, It's valuable. Who knew that you could lose it? At at that point I just didn't even – no.
2: And at this stage, we'd done 12 years straight professional comedy. So that was all we knew, really. And we thought that would be with us forever. And then we kind of started to realise, well, you do actually have to protect it. You have to build it. You have to cultivate it.
1: You have to, And once it's gone, it takes a long time to actually get it back again. So that's mm. why we started our original company, Humour Australia. And we thought if people like us are struggling, then there must be other people out there who also aren't coping in the workplace. Uh, and now we've moved to, to great talk because we truly believe that all happiness and success Comes down to storytelling and in particular two stories. The stories we tell ourselves and the stories we choose to share with others. You know, it's up to us to frame and reframe great stories because they become self fulfilling prophecies. So for us, it was really only losing it that we (laughs) realised. how important it was.
2: Mm, mm. And it was a great journey because it led us to 10 years of, you know, recovery, if you like, but also research on humour, understanding the fundamentals of humour, looking at what America was doing. There was no one really doing what we were doing in that space then. Um, It it was happening in America. We kind of brought it to Australia and, and brought it into the corporate world and it was fascinating to see how that worked and how you could get people to understand the value of humour. And Australians are naturally pretty good at it. It's kind mm. of built into our culture in a lot mm. of ways. So,
0: And I think, you know, like, like love, humour is humour. It just, it just, you know, humour is humour. It's it's, it's an objective thing, but in the end it's it just is what it is. And I, I, like you were saying with this kind of untapped secret power, why do you think there are some people that choose or don't ever have the kind of, you know, insight to tap into their own sense of humour? And like the, uh, the side question is, you know, is everyone funny or is it just a God-given gift?
1: Well, well I, I've got an answer to that because one of our programs is called Stand Up For Yourself and we actually take leaders and executives and help them to overcome their fear of public speaking by learning stand-up comedy. And at the end of the program, they all get up in front of a couple of hundred people and they deliver their first ever five-minute stand-up comedy routine. And the first time that we ran that program, um, we had to prepare them for failure because I didn't know if they weren't going to face plant in front of that audience. Now, it was a papered room, (laughs) Mm. so it was a safe space. The amazing thing was every single one of the people who have done the program are funny. Mm. Every single one of those people gets on stage and doesn't want to get off once they're up there. But to get them there, trust me, takes a whole lot um and more than that the audience knows that they're watching something extraordinary because almost 100% of people let's say 95% of people will tell themselves there's no way I could do stand up comedy I'm not I don't have it in me I'd be scared in front of an audience I've got nothing to say and yet the few times we've run the program everyone that's performed has been brilliant in fact a couple of people and these are just retail managers or execs you mm. know at a telecommunications company mm. um a few people from both ...times we've run the program, um, are world-class fa- funny. They, they didn't know it until they did the program... ...but once they got on stage, they discovered something in them... ...and it just surprised them. But the truth is, everyone is funny. Mm. Uh, oh, it, it do, It's to varying degrees, but if you can smile... ...or have a laugh with friends, you've got the ability to appreciate humour... ...and it's just how much you give yourself permission... To explore that and we live in a very serious world where people think to get serious things done we have to be serious all the time Mm. and it's just not true.
2: Yeah, I think the big mistake and this is something that we focus on is capability and seriousness are not related. But what we've found Mm. in the modern world is that people equate those two things. They're completely Mm. different ideas. Mm. You can be capable, you don't always have to be serious.
0: Mm. I I can completely relate to that, that feeling. For me, I think it's... What what else is there really to to genuinely get you through some horrible times in your life? I I maybe uh, I'm not right, <laughs> maybe I've been I've been dropped, uh, but but you know for me I always I always seem to turn to humor and really in other in other people's minds inappropriate or too soon times, but God, yeah. there's nothing that works better. I, I I don't think, and it's it's such. It's so powerful, and I think what you were talking about, you know, really resonated with me. You know, when you talk about, and certainly with the TEDx talk, the, this kind of epidemic of over seriousness in the world. And I'm always a firm believer that, you know, peace and happiness—it's there. It's there for you if you're just mm-hmm. willing to, you know, confront yourself, look within yourself, rather than blaming the the, the world and everyone else for your problems. How, mm. how do you, how do you guys maintain your your peace and happiness, and you know, through this kind of epidemic of, of over seriousness in a day to day world, which you would absolutely come in contact with given your great talk clients and the, the working environment you, you would go in and out of
2: yeah we do and we we feel it every day we have to remind ourselves too you know um, but i think because we find ourselves at a lot of events as well it's interesting watching people you know when you're not performing when you're watching groups of people come together say for a conference um, people that don't know each other whether it's standing out in a foyer or whether it's sitting at a table together at dinner and you see them kind of nervously introducing themselves If you watch that group interaction, it only takes a couple of minutes, even for people who don't know each other, for them to all have a laugh simultaneously because they're looking for that Pressure valve, you know, mm. that thing that goes, oh, it's okay, I can relax now and I'll have another drink. Uh, but, you know, the, everyone's looking for that commonality. We, we actually do it quite naturally. So I think it's, for a lot of people, it's about not thinking about it, but it's also you do have to cultivate it in order to keep it.
1: And, and I think the secret, it's really simple, to be honest with you. It's in order to be able to maintain your sense of humour, maintain your perspective. And remember, humour can help you to, you know, step over... 10 years of grief. Mm. You know, you, you say the wrong thing to the wrong person at the wrong time. And trust me, I've done it many times. As if,
2: recently <laughs> as yesterday.
1: <laughs> every every <laughs> lesson I've learned, I've learned <laughs> the hard way. But I analyze it and I, I think about my behavior, my performance, my words, what I could have done differently. You know, and I'm always going to be somebody that triggers people, actually. I just, mm. I, I've accepted that in myself. But the true secret, I believe, is the ability to be good company with anyone that is in front of you. So the ability to be open, interested, um, to make the other person feel special, to ask quality questions that kind Mm. of uh, reveal a little bit more about the person in front of you. We live in such a distracted world that you you stand out as someone quite extraordinary when you take the time to actually give someone 100% 100% of your energy and we all know how to be good company right and the beautiful thing when we're good company for somebody else is it's a win-win because mm. they lighten up you connect with them you feel better as a result and anytime that I am depressed or that I'm going through any level of anxiety I know all I've got to do is get out connect with someone and be good company get interested in them mm. and it takes all the pressure
0: off me Absolutely and do you do you think that, well, you know, with regards to kind of, you know, you were talking about how, you know, you can potentially grate on people. I can relate to that. I don't <laughs> think
1: I said grate, all right. No, I
0: think that's your I words. I think it's
1: your words. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that, you're okay if I use those words? For, it's, 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 I'm, saying, I'm saying me. I'm saying I can relate to that. It's, no, no, you're right. I think you're we've right. all pissed people off. But I think I can relate to it on, on a level that with regards to the kind of the over-seriousness, I mean, when you have people who um, – for example yourself troy myself we, we might be a bit more with with regards to with us where we're a bit more looking for the the joke the humor the you know the the, as you say, troy, troy, the, the pressure release in a situation other people are at such at a different side of that in that kind of over seriousness that they mm. fail to see what's just happened and it, it, it hits them in an entirely different level does that make sense what i'm saying or you just oh, want to yeah. um, smack me in the face
1: oh yeah yeah kind of a, a lack of perspective or a lack of awareness i guess it comes down to some social intelligence and there's
2: yeah self-awareness
1: there's some stats around it the positive psychology movement kind of says that you know 50 percent of our ability to be happy or good humoured is genetic so if your parents were lighthearted and you had a great childhood, chances are you'll find it easy too.
2: But if they were miserable so-and-sos, it might be tough.
1: 50% is genetic. So it's our ability to see the lighter side of life. It really comes down to our parents and our DNA. 10% is environmental, so that's where we work, uh, how much money we earn, our health, our friends, all the stuff that we put so much weight on to bring us happiness in life.
2: Is actually only worth about 10% of our mental well being.
1: Yep, and the 40% comes down to how we think, our mindset, how we see the world, our perspective. You know, and we often sort of say to our audiences, it's all about explanatory style. So you put two kids on a roller coaster and you take a picture at the critical moment. One is squealing with joy, the other screaming in terror, right? (laughs) So, you know, one ride, two completely different reactions because it's got nothing to do with what's happening outside of us and everything to do with how we're thinking And seeing the world. Now that's really hard when you're stressed, when you're depressed, because it feels so real. It feels like the outside world is to blame for how you're feeling. But one of the best things, you know, you can learn is it's not you, it's me. Always. You know, the only thing I've got control over is my response, my Mm. reaction. And that's that takes a long time to to learn. I certainly didn't know that when we were working in radio. I, I absolutely thought Um, I was trying to do the right thing and and everyone else was, you know, um, challenging me on that. I wasn't seeing at the time that if I change my behaviour, I'd get a different response from people as well. And obviously I'm talking internally with radio, not externally with the listeners because the listeners got us, right? Mm. The listeners, as you know, we went from seventh position back there to number one in our demo. And it was because of the openness, the realness, the rawness. And I think that that's the other point is you don't have to be perfect, you know, we, we respect leaders who look like they've got it all together, but we relate to people who are just like the rest of us. And you know, fail. They make mistakes. Get they it wrong. Stuff it up. Yeah. They, you know, cry five minutes into a job interview. I'm thinking of my best friend who did that recently. I love that story. <laughs> Where do you see yourself in five years? <laughs> <laughs> Never a good start. <laughs> but a great story, right? <laughs> so, yeah, I think it all yeah. comes down to how you see. And I think things. you're ab- you're absolutely right.
0: And what's really interesting is you know what the product that uh, we've all tried to create through you know through radio programs is is really it's a product for the people at the other end of the speakers, it's not not a product for the people sitting in in the radio station offices. Although the only people that judge it are the people sitting in the radio station offices, but, That's but the, the the product is for the people listening at the speakers. And of course, number one, they're not looking for. Oh, but hang on, mate, you didn't have um, you know, you didn't you didn't have you know the caller in ten seconds at the 10-second mark, and then and then move on to the song intro and then hit the post. That that they, they, they don't know what that even means. What they no. care about is just what actually hits them emotionally, it gets them. And with regards to being perfect or not perfect I think personally you know as you rightly point out utterly utterly irrelevant it really is about just connecting and it's bloody hard for us in your instance for breakfast shows to connect to people it's bloody hard it doesn't just happen you can t- you can take any city any radio station as a, as a case study and you'll see it it's hard if a show connects it's special. It connects for a reason. And and that's that's the same for, you know, the shows I've, I've tried to put together and the radio stations I've worked at, I, I, I totally agree. And as you say, you found an audience and the audience, you know, loved what you did. And Zara, do you think – and Troy, do you think people that were, were um, fans of your show and around for your time, you know, in a successful breakfast show and you know, specifically in Perth, do, do you think people wonder what happened or wonder why? And that's – I'm really interested to hear – uh, you know, in hindsight now, your thoughts yeah. and recollections on on that time. Yeah. Well, as,
2: as you know, oh, um, the the downside of radio is that when people go, either they they're made to go or they decide to go, which was our case. We actually gave a year's notice in Perth. Um, you cannot communicate that to the listener. You're not allowed to communicate that to the listener. So our listeners found out, I think, a week. Uh, mm. off from us going, mm. uh, which was good, and the send-off was great. But, yeah, it does leave a hole for them because, you know, it's it's an emotional impact. They have a connection to you. You're in their homes every day. Um, you know, it's very sudden. It's like a death, really, in the family.
1: Yeah, yeah, it is. And it, it amazed us, oh, that uh you know we we do conferences and people would come up and go oh my god it's you guys where Where have you been where have you been well (laughs) please come back please come back to perth and (laughs) it, it still happens i would say almost every conference we speak at or host someone will come out and say oh my god i love your show and why it's because our show had everything it was real it had drama we didn't hide anything we believed that the more we were brave enough to share our personal stories, as this was certainly my mantra, the more I was brave enough to tell the truth of all the ugly bits of me, the mistakes, the <laughs> you know, the good, the bad and the ugly, mm. the more I was allowing people in their own homes to feel the same sense of bravery. And what they would do then is pick up the phone and share their story with the entire community. And we felt like... That was shining a little bit of light in the world to help somebody that previously thought I have to hide the darkest parts of me. I have to hide the parts that have gone wrong in my life, mm. my pains, my losses, my mistakes, my hilarities in all that as well. But often, you know, the drama of it, it's its the pain of it is when we have to do it all behind closed doors. So when you can kind of open those doors up and say, you know what, we all suffer we all are going to get it wrong from time to time and we can laugh at that because sometimes...
2: It's worthy of laughter. <laughs>
1: it's worthy of laughter. Or we can cry together.
2: Because sometimes yeah. it needs that too.
1: Yeah, it, it it allows people to go, I don't have to hide this. And I think it's the hiding it that creates the the bulk of the pain.
2: And a lot happened um, while we were on air for those four years in Perth as well. I mean, we moved to Western Australia to be part of that show. But um, we had the Bali bombings, which were, you know, catastrophic for Australians. And and 50% of those Aussies killed were from WA. Mm. We had 9-11. So, Mm. you know, there was some big stuff going on. And we were on air for all of those events. And, you know, certainly the Bali bombings was was just a massive impact in the local community there. And, you know, everyone felt that for a long time. Yeah, absolutely right. It was an it
0: really was an amazing time, and I I, like you look back and go, God, I didn't realize it was that long ago, and it really it really did feel like a a great team to be a part of, and a great time to be there. And you do look back and go, Wow, you just you know, I can't believe I was part I I was a part of that. And you know, and I I look at it, I can I look back at it, you know, in really positive ways to be a part of that team and create what we created. And I too I do also acknowledge and agree. There's kind of odd environments. Um, you know, corporate environments in in a creative field that doesn't really mesh. And uh, we all have our elements, but God, it was fantastic. But I, I learned the same thing too. And I think as of with, with podcasting and, you know, kind of digital technology, radio has to decide very quickly if it still thinks the top of the list is, uh, you know, Clinical sounding radio, or the top of the list, is just organically sometimes you know clumsy or sloppy or just some organic real radio. From my point of view, the only thing I ever remember when I listen to radio is stuff that isn't that clinically tight, um, you know, absolutely generic utterly irrelevant, you know, 15-second announcer talking between songs. God knows what they said. I didn't hear anything. I don't remember anything. And, and, and that's really what's going to – that's the future of radio, in, in my opinion. It's
1: real people being real, for God's sakes. Am I, am I wrong? Yeah, well, that, that's why podcasting has taken off, yeah. It's the freedom mm. for people to do it in their own time frames. It doesn't have to be light, tight and bright in two and a half minutes with a special hook leading into the ad break. You know, it's, <laughs> yeah. it, it, it's ultimately the freedom to do it the way that you want to do it. But I think at the time, it's it's probably changed and evolved drastically since we were there. When we were there, we, we got in and wanted to change the world and, and we probably needed to take our time a little bit. You know, I wanted it all too fast. But at the same time, we had eight bosses in four years. So the only consistency in that station really was us – Um, And each boss would come in and they would do the same thing. They'd say, we're going to fix this. And you go, well, we're doing all right, actually. It's a
2: little bit offensive uh, as a (laughs) way to start, as a management technique. You might want to reconsider that.
1: And I don't know what your um, post-show meetings were. For people that don't know radio, basically, you get up at 3.30, you come in and you do the show. Um, Then after the show, you do a meeting and you prep the next day's show. And Mm. so we would have a meeting and then we would spend the next five hours, say, preparing characters and interviews and all kinds of things for the following day's show
2: and the idea for that is that the following morning you show up with a complete three and a half hour plan but obviously news happens overnight right you have things like 911 or the Bali bombings and they, mm. they can take over a show mm. so you show up planned and if all goes well and there's nothing big happening you follow the plan but if you uh, if there's something else that you need that is hotter you know you've got to follow that and and that was the uh, that was a great thing for me was the ability to go somewhere new
1: but it was also a source of tension within the staff because mm. we would always prepare. And someone told me this in my first couple of days of radio. Um, they said, prepare, but if you don't need to tap into everything that you've prepared because you can just go with the flow on the day of the show, do that. And so that was always in the back of my mind. Prepare, have it there. Mm. But if something better comes along, go with it. Do However, it. the station, the, the program directors, um, they, they want to know that we made a plan yesterday and you're going to stick to it today. And so it was always... a a form of tension between us that we didn't necessarily follow the plan and And not a
2: positive creative tension like it works in other industries with film and tv there's Mm. a positive creative tension even theater we come from that you know there's a positive creative tension it was never a positive creative tension
1: this was basically a meeting that often went for an hour after a show which was okay let me tell you everything you did wrong today Mm. and
2: people love that that's a great management technique right there
1: and so I used to you know with all the new bosses and I tried to have a conversation with all of them and I I never got this through because it I, I hadn't, didn't have the skills. I didn't have the skills. Mm. I didn't know how to mm. express myself in a way to management that was going to allow them to hear me. Um, But I remember saying to all of them, do you know what, I know myself, I have a lack of self-confidence, I struggle with eating disorders for a lot of my early life, I know how I work and I work with positive reinforcement. So if you can start a meeting with one thing that you think I nailed or that we got right during the day, you can then follow that with 20 things that you feel there's room for improvement on and I will revel. In fixing those, I will revel in enhancing my ability for the next day's show. But do you think any one of those eight bosses would ever be brave enough to start a meeting that way? Let's look at what went right.
2: No, no, because there was a power dynamic there too. Of uh, by, by giving you what I what you want, I you know I subjugate my power to you. Maybe. So it, it was a power thing. Maybe for me.
1: Yeah, maybe. Maybe we are all just learning. Uh, You know, it was Mm. a learning ground for management. It was a learning ground for us. But consequently it meant that we had to leave a job that we really loved and were really great at uh, and, you know, and start a new life, which has been wonderful. But at the same time, I really miss radio. It was beautiful. You know, the idea of speaking to
2: everyday
1: people mm, mm. and hearing their stories was just the most uplifting experience of our life
2: and we got to leverage it for a lot of good causes so we raised a lot of money for charity which we really enjoyed as well yeah yeah Mm -hmm. you guys were amazing you did a great job but
0: can i say you're right being purely factual you're right zara it was a training ground for for bloody Mm. everyone it really was and and we geez i'm glad i got to i got to you know to work there and you're right people were all learning i think that's absolutely right we were all learning and, and that's the thing everyone needed to acknowledge and that probably wasn't acknowledged, you know what I mean? When everyone's learning, everyone has to um, take, take a, di- a slightly different tact um, and you're right, that, that, didn't, uh, that didn't always happen and that didn't work well. God, God forbid the people on the radio might happen to be creative type people. I mean, it's, honestly, it's not rocket science. You, get, you yep. put an accountant in one room, you put a creative person in another uh, and then they come into the room together and critique and we're going to critique you. It doesn't make a lot of sense. It's a bit like um, getting, you know, an elephant and a monkey, and saying we're going to test you on your ability to climb a, climb a tree. Well, they don't. They both don't climb trees. You moron. But anyway, um, mm-hmm. from my point of view, I, I, <laughs> it's really interesting to hear, by the way, Zara, that you miss, or you kind of miss it, or you missed it, or you. You know, think mm. about it uh, longingly because I just I just would have assumed I would have heard you guys, um, you know, down the track, given you know your abilities and your passion and your love for it. So it's interesting you mention that because it was always a surprise to me.
1: Yes, yeah, it was. We we absolutely loved it, and I totally missed it. And I think that it actually it pummeled us. Oh, I think it. Um,
2: I was clinically depressed for two years. It yeah, took me a long time to get over.
1: Yeah, we really struggled at the end of this. You know, again, you're walking away from a lot of money too. You know, mm. you kind of
2: and we had nothing. So we started our business from scratch. So we literally had no income for the first two years yeah. and um, it was hard work.
1: Yeah, and I think I just lost my confidence, you know. I lost my ability to say, hey, this is what I'm good at, And it, which is ironic because we stand in front of audiences of 1,000, 2,000 sometimes um, each week and we share our insights and wisdom on communication and storytelling and we host conferences but for radio yeah, you know, i don't know why it's taken us so long to to kind of get our confidence back but it, it had an effect okay well if you do it in melbourne i'm the anchor okay let's move on <laughs> <laughs> you'd, be good. you'd be great yeah us, we'd actually. be a good team yes i like it
0: let's do it write <laughs> it and i'll cite it now uh, zara i loved your uh, your tedx talk um i've i've viewed it and it's been viewed by you know pushing 100,000 people across the planet. For those that aren't aware of it, though, would you mind just kind of, you know, nutshell giving us a a bit of a rundown on on your belief that there is an epidemic of over-seriousness in the world and talking a bit about, you know, the crux of this TEDx talk, which you you did, which was amazing.
1: Mm. You know, yesterday we had a very serious meeting with some very serious business partners about a very serious... Uh, deal that's Mm. happening in our lives right now. Very serious. And it was just all very, 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 very serious and it got quite dramatic at one point in hindsight, not from us, but it was just a serious thing. And we were kind of feeling a bit like, oh, okay, here we go. And we went along to um, a a movie theatre in Melbourne here for an airing of a great ABC show called... You
2: Can't Ask That? You
1: Can't Ask That. Now, I don't know if you've seen the show before. It's just two people basically... uh, answering questions in front of a camera and the episode that we saw was uh, women and men who were the victims of domestic violence mm. and within half a second of us walking into that theatre feeling really heavy from this meeting and thinking about oh you know what was us now How are we going to navigate this and sort it out right in front of us is real pain. Mm. Not perceived pain. No, that's right. Actual
2: <laughs> actual issues.
1: Actual issues. And yeah. within half a second you're like, oh, my God, get some perspective, Zara, for God's sake, we'll sort this out. This is just a conversation that needs to be had in a way that's going to work for everybody. So... That talk for me, I, I meant it, every every boardroom we walk into with every CEO we sit down with, it's serious business. You know, people get straight to the KPIs and the ROIs and the dotting in the eyes and it's, it's all about the agenda and getting things done and wherever we can, we try and um, subvert the attention and divert the attention actually and mm. get people being human with each other first and foremost before they start the work. And it's amazing what happens when you can actually have a nice chat with a group of execs around a boardroom table before you get to the agenda – something magical happens the work gets done much faster yeah much more easily and
2: you get a bit of result
1: the creativity starts to flow so i think like troy said before we're confused between capability and seriousness that we think that getting things done means we have to be uh, very focused and you know our our eyebrows need to be furrowed but actually (laughs) the some of the most successful people are quite light-hearted
2: yeah, that's true. And you put it another way, you know, I could look very serious boarding a jumbo in a captain's uniform, but it's actually not going to get off the ground, despite how serious I feel, because I don't <laughs> have the qualifications.
1: So, that's right. you know,
2: it, there is a difference between capability and seriousness. And that's the important thing to remember. It's and, okay to be both.
1: And I tend to think that if you're overly serious, and we all work with people like that, it's, it really triggers me. Mm. Humorless people, and we said it before, everyone's got a sense of humor, but not everybody accesses it mm. in the workplace. And humorless, overly serious people really trigger me. Um, And I have to be very patient to make sure that we kind of work the relationship. Um, But it's just a myth to think that you're going to get the work done in a more efficient manner without some level of human connection. And that's all of it. You know, that's the lighthearted, that's the serious, but it's connecting heart to heart. We often say you know, that emotion creates motion. So when we're storytelling on stage, emotion creates motion. When I connect my heart to yours, that creates the motivation um, to move someone to want to try something new. And without an emotional connection, we don't care. We don't don't give a stuff – think about your favourite TV show or a TV show that you hate. You know, if you don't kind of relate to the leading characters in the first five minutes and care about their plight, bang, we're out. We're watching something new. Consequently, you're watching something and you think, oh, man, I really love this character. What's going to happen next? You're in because the Mm. stakes are high. We want to see if they're going to solve it. So, yeah, I, I wanted to just kind of remind people that there's another way to live. And that the nicer we are to each other, the more we appreciate each other, the more we take time to connect and share stories, the better the work ends up being and the more innovative we become.
0: You know, I'm an intense person. It's called intensely inquisitive, for God's sakes. But I've, I've I've always struggled with maintaining, you know, the level of seriousness in workplaces. I always find myself battling to kind of, you know, suppress like a natural sense of humour, maybe playfulness, uh, cheekiness, whatever you want to call it. What impact do you think the epidemic of over seriousness is having? On workplaces, and you know, how do we overcome it? Oh my God, mm. it's,
1: it's it's enormous. You know, well, there's I, lots of. St- oh, sorry, Troy, I'll just say this one. But there's lots of statistics now that people are um, not sleeping. In fact, Australia's got the worst sleepers in in you know the the free world currently. Um, we're showing up, but we're burning out. So mm. there's a high degree of stress. A million adults are currently depressed. Hundred thousand kids. Um, Those figures are growing and growing and it just means that we've got blinkers on. We're so focused on getting through the day that we don't know how to expand our peripheral and soften our focus to see the opportunities that are kind of right under our noses in the form of new relationships and new ideas because we're so stressed about getting the volume of work done Mm. that we need to get done.
2: And the human animal is a social animal. You know, we came up that way from the caves. Um, We're a community, (laughs) so we relate better to each other um, if we can break down some of those walls and be a little bit more human. And I think in in workplace terms, it gives us more innovation, more creativity. You know, the more serious and the more isolated we become, just individual human units rather than a group, be that uh, a corporate group or a friend group or whatever, um, the more opportunities you're missing because because you've you got blinkers on in a lot of ways. Do you think that humour's changed?
0: What does humour in life and in the workplace actually look like in, in 2019?
2: <laughs> well, it's getting um, a lot more serious over time. I mean, we've got serious issues going on at the moment worldwide and um, even things like Me Too. You know, that has an impact on what's appropriate and what isn't. And we should also add a caveat to when we talk about humour in the workplace, it's always appropriate humour. And for me, appropriate humour is inclusive. Like um, my natural state in a group is not always to contribute, but I will sit and listen with a group of people and I'll look for the funny line at the end that makes everyone laugh. And, And it'll generally tie into the point still. It's not off on its own tangent, but it's because I've been listening and I've been reading the rhythm and the energy in the room. And I just know from experience what's going to relieve the tension for everyone and make everyone go, oh, isn't that great, great, okay, and then we can move on to the next point. So that's that's my natural state. What about you?
1: Well, well, Troy's quite right too that there's a, a lot of change that's happening in the world at the moment too. We've got clients that since we've left radio we've worked with every single year. There's one client we've been with for 11 years. We've done over 100 events with them. Another client we've worked with the last seven years in – two or three of the environments that I'm referring to here they're going through major changes internally and mm. so they've culled or they're about to cull um, enormous amounts of their work w- w- their their workforce mm. so with one of the the companies we work for they've just cut 8000 people Now, that has an impact, right? Mm, So all the people that are left behind, there's a degree of guilt and fear of what's going to happen next. Am I going to be in the next cull?
2: Uncertainty. And
1: all those people were great people at this organisation who dedicated their life and now they're gone. Could that happen to me? So there's this uncertainty about what's going to happen. But I believe, oh, in fact, I used this quote yesterday and I don't know if I'll get it quite right, but the, the old Kennedy quote in the 60s when he was referring to the space race, he said something like, we choose to... Go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because it is easy, but because it is hard. Mm. And what I get from that is human beings, we like things to be kind of easy. We like them to be the same. We like to wake up one day and go, Oh, I just want everything to stay the same for a, a little while. But actually, we need things to be difficult. We need things to be challenging. And the whole point of humanity is to grow, evolve, become something more than you were yesterday until we end up back in the ground ultimately. So we like challenge but we tell ourselves we don't. So even in an environment where people are getting cold there's an opportunity to view that and respond in an intelligent way that still allows you to keep all of your energy, all of your optimism and expect a a good result. Um, Or you get the other people that are just in fear and believe that it's all going to end tomorrow and running around with their arms above their heads. Um, freaking out which again feels like the right thing to do when everything changes but we've got an opportunity and that's why we believe in humour to put a little bit of space between you and the change so you've got a choice on how you respond it's
0: been so good talking to you guys again i've really i've really enjoyed it
1: yeah Thanks, and, mate. Uh, We've enjoyed it too. We got the old gang back together, <laughs> <Absolutely>. <laughs> and no one's paying us. That's the difference yeah, now, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, we do it for the love.
0: I'm
2: just glad there's no air check.
1: Uh- <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've got a list of things you could do better. Oh, I'm yeah, just going to yeah. send them to you now.
2: And just by the way, it's uh, 25 past 11. Coming up, Secret Sound. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much, Zara and Troy. I really do appreciate your time.
1: Our pleasure. Thanks,
0: o. o. My guest today was Zara and Troy from Great Talk. And thank you for listening to this episode of Intensely Inquisitive. My hope is that it's empowered you in some way through learning new things, inspiring you to learn more, or simply spark some interesting conversations. I look forward to continuing this conversation with you, so feel free to like the Orion Kelly page on Facebook. And if there's a topic or question you'd like me to explore in an upcoming episode of Intensely Inquisitive, please message me or post it on the Orion Kelly Facebook page. Until next time keep asking questions. Thanks for listening to Intensely Inquisitive with Orion Kelly. For more episodes and to stay up to date, like the Orion Kelly page on Facebook.